Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Right. Hi, guys. Today we have Dr. Mbata, surgical gastroenterologist from Steve Biko Academic Hospital, who's going to be giving us a bit of a discussion around esophageal cancer. Welcome, Dr. Mbata. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. So what kinds of esophageal cancer are the most common ones that you would see in your clinical practice? The most common ones that you see in our clinical practice is squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma. And what would be common risk factors for squamous cell carcinoma? Um, squamous cell carcinoma has a number of risk factors. Um, these include uh, smoking, long-term smoking, and excessive abuse of alcohol. Patients who have achalasia, which is one of the um, dysmotility disorders of the esophagus, if it's long-standing achalasia, that increase the risk of developing squamous cell carcinoma. Patients with human papilloma virus um, infections are also found to have an increased risk. Um, patients with a previous history of caustic injury and caustic ingestions have also an increased risk. Um, patients with um, a disease called tylosis, which is a raw autosomal dominant disease presenting with hyperkeratosis of the palms and soles of the feet, have also been found to be an increased risk of developing um, squamous cell carcinoma. In terms of diets, it's found that patients who have diets that are low in fruit and vegetables and diets that are high in nitrogenous compounds have also increased risk of developing squamous cell carcinoma. And are the risk factors for adenocarcinoma different? And if they are, what would they be? Um, yes, the, the, the predominant risk factors for adenocarcinoma are, are, are different. Um, adenocarcinoma typically arises from patients who have long-standing gastroesophageal reflux disease that has developed into paretosophagus. Paretosophagus uh, is metaplasia or a change of the normal uh, squamous cell so cell epithelium of the esophagus into a columnar epithelium. And then these patients develop then um, metaplasia and then dysplasia, which eventually progresses into a carcinoma in the columnar part of the epithelium. I think we're going to ask you a little bit more about gastroesophageal reflux in a future podcast. Mm. Um, what would be the most common clinical presentation for patients that have an esophageal carcinoma? The, the, the most classical one, the typical presentation that we have, uh, these patients present with what we call progressive dysphagia, which is basically difficulty in swallowing. Um, and this is typically progressive, meaning it gets worse over time. Initially, they will tell you that they, could, they were able to swallow um, solids food without a problem and then eventually they couldn't swallow solids they had to they were only able to swallow uh, soft foods and then eventually if they stay at home they can eventually um, reach a stage where they're struggling even even to swallow their own saliva and this progressive dysphagia can also be graded in a system which we call a functional grading system whereas grade one is patients who can still swallow their solids but they maybe need a little bit of help with some liquids and grade six will be complete dysphagia where they're struggling even to swallow their own saliva. And then these patients, because they are cancer patients, also have anorexia and they tend to have weight loss. And that will be like the typical 
common presentation for their for the sales of rabbit. And are there any other specific signs or symptoms that you are concerned about that are specific to esophageal carcinoma? Um, definitely, Prof. We we also worry about um, signs that signs that indicate to us our symptoms that indicate to us that uh, there might be evidence of a local in, a local invasion or local spread of the disease. These will include things like uh, coughing choking, recurrent aspiration pneumonia, which we see in patients that have developed a tracheoesophageal fistula. So a communication between the oesophagus and the trachea that will present with those symptoms. We also worry about those patients who suddenly present with vocal cord palsy, and they will come to us with hoarseness of voice, and that will be as a result of the invasion of the recurrent laryngeal nerves. So we also tend to look at those symptoms which are suggestive of invasion or local invasion of the disease. Are all esophageal cancers symptomatic? Well, not all of them. Um, we do get some patients who are asymptomatic. Most commonly, these patients are identified in our setting when we do an endoscopy for other indications. For example, a patient might be presenting with dyspepsia that's long-standing, and we send the patient for upper endoscopy, and at upper endoscopy, there's an incidental finding of a lesion in the oesophagus. In the eastern countries, especially in, in like Asia and Japan, they also have surveillance um, systems because of the increased rate or incidence of the sales first they have surveillance uh, protocols so they will also pick up patients who are asymptomatic when they're doing their surveillance endoscopy and then with clinical examination are there any specific um, signs that one can find that are specific to um, esophageal cancer well, esophageal cancer per se it doesn't have any specific signs of the esophageal um, cancer but it's general signs that arise because of the um, difficulty in eating, of the dysphagia of the patient, and also the cancer symptoms and so on. So these patients generally tend to be severely wasted. Um, they present with dehydration. They might have some pallor um, because of um, recurrent or slow, what we call anemia of chronic illness, or so slow oozing of blood from the cancer. They might also have some signs that are indicative of the spread of the disease or metastasis of the, of the disease. For example, a tinge of jaundice. They might have a cervical lymph node, which typically we call a virtuous lymph node, which is a supraclavicular lymph node on the um, left side on, on, on the left side so in let's think of a hypothetical situation if you're maybe sitting in your surgical outpatient department and you have a patient who <coughs> presents with progressive dysphagia maybe a bit of hoarseness of voice so you're suspicious that they might have a an esophageal carcinoma what would you be your approach to investigating this patient oh okay prof like in any other disease that we see we must all, always um think of differentials even though a patient might present with a typical picture we must always consider that there might be differentials that the patient might have for example Patients with dysphagia um, might be arising because they have other um, dysmotility motility disorders of esophagus. They might have strictures that have benign strictures like peptic strictures from recurrent uh, reflux disease. Um, they might have what we call a Zenkas diverticulum, um, where there's an outpouching of the mucosa to the back of the esophagus, causing some um, form of dysphagia. So we must always consider 
the risk factors and also a number of dysmotility disorders like the achalasia must be um, thought of in terms of differentials. So in terms of our investigation, the first thing that we would like to do will be a baram swallow so as to give us sort of a roadmap and also to exclude these differentials, particularly we're more concerned about things like Zenkas diverticulum because it's in a um, blind spot in the upper part of the esophagus. We don't want to cause perforations when we go in with our scopes or invasive investigations into the esophagus. And if you've done your barium swallow and it shows that you have a, a classical rat's tail stricture or an apple core deformity, uh, what would be your next step? Well, if we've, if once we've done our barium swallow um, and it has shown those typical features, um, of a CO esophagus, then we would have to do um, a a mod a, another diagnostic investigation, which is called an upper endoscopy, so that you can give us inform more information about the tumor itself. At endoscopy, we would like the endoscopist to give us the indication of where the tumor is um, from the incisors, so the, the location of the tumor, and if possible, the size of the tumor, and the extent of the involvement of the mucosa so is it a circumferential tumor? Is it only involving one part of the esophagus or the, the entire wall? And then more importantly, we would like to endoscopies to biopsy so as to confirm our suspicion of the diagnosis of uh, carcinoma of the esophagus. And then if your biopsy comes back and it confirms that you have a, a carcinoma, what would what is your approach then? Um, the, what would, the approach then, um, firstly, because these patients obviously tend to, to be cachectic and severely instead of said, we do, do a, lot, a sort of general um, investigations like urine is your full blood count or liver function test just to assess the general state of the patient and we correct whatever abnormalities that you pick up on those extremes. Um, but then we move on to staging, which is more specific because we need to know exactly how far the tumor is gone. In terms of the staging, um, we use the HACC TNM classification uh, for staging, but the best modality we use is the CT scan, which is the modality of choice, which should be the CT scan of your chest, your abdomen, and your pelvis. And I would assume that that would be a, a contrasted CT scan. Um, is there any role for tumor markers? And if there are tumor markers, which ones would they be? Um, currently, for specifically for cancer of the esophagus, um, we do not have any tumor markers that are specific um, to the to the CEOs of, of the esophagus. So no, no tumor markers. Okay. And then apart from a CT scan, would there ever be any other um, staging modalities that you would use and, and if they are, why would you use them and in which which scenarios would you use them? Yes, definitely Prof, there are other staging modalities. Um, what When we when the patient presents clinically, obviously we assess the patient clinically. Um, like we said before, sometimes these patients present with uh, symptoms or, and signs suggestive of local invasion. In those patients, we can do simple investigations initially, like a chest x-ray, which will tell us if the patient has cannonball lesions, will tell us if the patient has blood effusions, and will give us also an indication if they have the recurrent um, pneumonia our aspiration pneumonias, those will be patients with a tracosophageal fistula. Um, and then also we can do a nice simple abdominal ultrasound with suspecting that the patient is already advanced based on clinical examination. We can do an ultrasound which will show us particularly if there's any liver metastasis. The most common sites um, of metastasis that we see in these patients will obviously be lymph nodes and lungs and liver. 
and then other sites include bone, adrenal glands and the brain, but lymph nodes, lung and liver are the ones that we tend to look at. And then we also have another investigation that you can do in, in patients um, that present early um, or with early disease, which is called an endoscopic ultrasound, which is very good in terms of giving us a local staging of the disease because it tells us exactly how far the cancer is infiltrated into the wall of the esophagus. And that obviously changes the, manage that, the management technique we can offer the patient. Endoscopic ultrasound can also be used in, in settings where the CT scan findings are not very clear but in terms of the extent in local advanced disease, but the CT scan findings are not very clear in terms of the extent of invasion. So we can use EUS to give us a more detailed um, uh, the staging of the wall of the esophagus and also the local staging to see in other words in those patients we have T4 lesions we want to see if they are T4A or T4B. And is there any role for nuclear medicine maybe with PET scanning in routine practice? Well PET scanning in, in, we don't normally use it in the initial in the initial staging process um, it's used predominantly um, to answer uh, again if they are um, yeah, maybe masses that we pick up on CT scan, distal metastasis that are not clearly metastatic masses that cannot be clearly defined as metastasis and we're not sure but we're still suspecting that there might be then there might be a role of a PET CT scan if those lesions come up to be metabolically active then there will be metastasis so if there's equivocal um, information on our initial staging on the CT, then we can consider a, CT, a PET CT. Otherwise, we use it after we've treated the patient when we're monitoring and, and surveilling the patient after treatment to see if there's any new um, nodules that are arising. Okay, and so once you've confirmed your diagnosis and you've done your staging, what is your approach to the management of the patient? Well, our approach to management, um, basically once we've staged the patient, um, is based on, on two major factors that we need to look at. The first uh, is the patient factor. So we look at the age of the patient, um, more specifically the physiological age of the patient, not necessarily um, the chronological age, but the physiological age, how healthy does the patient look in terms of age. We look at the comorbidities of the patient, any other disease that they have, um, the general health of the patient, their cardiopulmonary reserve, and their nutritional status. And that will determine how far we can go in terms of our management. And then the next day, the next principle is to look at the extent of the tumor, the location of the tumor, that will be your, st your, your staging, and also the location of the tumor. And how would you approach the patient according to tumor staging, so your T-staging? So if the patient is fit, obviously, for, for intervention, then we have to look at the tumor staging to approach the patient. In terms of the tumor staging, um, we look at um, the staging, for example, the patient who have very early tumors, uh, those will be your carcinoma in situ, so the TIS and the T1, T1A. Your T1A would be your patients um, who have tumor that is uh, confined to the epithelium has in, in the basement membrane and has not gone beyond the submucosa. Those patients are good patients to be considered for endoscopic treatment. 
Whereas patients with uh, cancers that are confined to the oesophagus but have gone beyond the submucosa, um, like your T1 lesions or T2 lesions, um, then surgical resection should be considered in those patients. For locally advanced um, upfront surgical resection for T1 and T2, then for locally advanced um, disease like those with uh, T1 T1, um, up to T3, with the involvement of lymph nodes or those you should consider multimodality approach in terms of treatment those are the surgical fit that means together give them oncological treatment together with um, resection maybe we usually start um, with um, giving them um, what we call adjuvant um, chemotherapy or chemoradiotherapy depending on what is available in the institution to downstage the tumor followed by surgical resection so, Dr. Mbata, once you've completed your staging investigations, is there a way of clinically dividing patients into different disease categories? Yes, yes, Prof. Um, in, once we've done that, we usually like to use the HACC 10M classification um, to then classify our patients so that you will guide um, our treatment and our further management of the patient. Um, in this uh, classification, we have um, patients who come with very early lesions, those will be your carcinoma in situ, TIS and T1A. And then we have your patients who come with what we call early lesions, which will be your, your T1 and T2. T1 is usually patients that have a cancer that has gone into the submucosa but hasn't beyond, gone beyond the submucosa. And your T2 lesions will be those lesions that have gone beyond the submucosa into the muscularis, into the muscularis layer or the muscle layer of the oesophagus. So T1 and T2 with, without any nodal involvement will be considered as early disease. And then we have locally advanced group. The locally advanced group will be the groups like T1, 2, 3, 3 with involvement of lymph nodes. Um, and then we have irresectable locally advanced disease. Those will be where there's invasion of the surrounding structures, the T4B, so invasion of the tumor beyond the oesophagus itself. And then obviously in the end, we also have a disseminated cancer, which will be your M1 or presence of metastasis outside of the area of oesophagus. So once you've staged your patient, um, what would be your approach to the ma clinical management of your patient? Uh, we, well, when you have to manage, there's two important factors that we have to look at. One is the operability of the patient, which means has the patient based on the comorbidities, the general health, the nutritional status, whether they the their cardiopulmonary reserve, are these patients will these patients be fit for major operation, which which uh, is required um, for the oesophagus called the oesophagectomy. So operability is the first thing: is the patient can the patient be operated on, and then the next important factor is the resectability of the tumor itself. The resectability obviously is based on the TNM staging that we've outlined above. So if we say that the patient is operable and they are fit for the surgery, how would you approach the various options or, or clinical stages in a patient? So um, in, in, in general, the approach will be for very early tumors, that will be a TIS and T1A, we must consider endoscopic treatment, which will include endoscopic mucosal resection or endoscopic submucosal dissection. For early lesions um, like T1 and like T1, T2 without any lymph node involvement, we will consider doing upfront surgery as uh, oesophagectomy. And your patients that are locally advanced? 
Then for the patients that are locally advanced, then there we should consider the multimodality approach to the treatment where we use surgical approach and also oncological treatment. For those patients who would preferably wish they should get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then we offer them surgery. After surgery, then we can look at restage them and then offer them adjuvant therapy, chemotherapy. And the patients that are not resectable, is there anything that we can offer them? So the patients that are not resectable, either because they are locally advanced or they have disseminated disease, then we have to then move on to offering them palliation. And what would be some of the options for palliation? So in, in terms of palliation, um, what we look at is what the, what's the main presenting, what's the main problem of the patient. In these patients, the main problem is dysphagia. So we have to look at palliating dysphagia. The simplest method that we have of palliation is what we call dilatation and stenting, where we put self-expanding metal stents to allow the patient to be able to eat. If the dysphagia is not um, severe, it's not like if it's early dysphagia, in terms of um, grading system and the patients can still tolerate some of uh, typically liquid diet, then we can consider offering them radiation therapy in a form of brachytherapy or even external prim um, radiotherapy. Okay, and in the patients in which you think they are resectable, um, what would be your approach there? So then for the patients who are resectable, um, the best form of treatment is to offer them um, surgical resection. Um, the, the form of the type of surgery that you offer this patient um, is dependent on um, one, the location of the tumor um, itself. We have three types, three main types uh, of surgical resection that you can offer, which will be transfatal will be a three-stage and your two-stage procedures. Um, also, another thing to remember is that these surgeries can be offered either laparoscopically, thoracoscopically, or open. In the in this three in this three-stage approach, that's when we have to open up the abdomen, we have to open the chest, and we also have to open the neck, and we remove most of the esophagus and use a stomach as a conduit as one of the conduits to bring it up into to the neck and join and do um, an anastomosis in the neck whereas in the two-stage procedure is usually used for those patients who have lesions lower lesions like OG junction tumors so in the lower third of the esophagus and you have enough margin of the esophagus in the chest so in those patients we open up the abdomen and the chest and now resect the distal part of the esophagus and the anastomosis usually performed in the chest. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're coming slowly but surely to the end of our time. Are there any concluding um, comments that you'd like to make on esophageal carcinoma? Well, in, in, in terms of conclusion, I think the, in the important things and important things for our students to remember um, is the, in terms of the imaging, when they are seeing the patients for the first time, and the imaging, especially the um, the barium swallow, they need to remember um, and know um, the features and be able to identify features um, of seosophagus uh, in the barium swallow, and then to assess patients the operability of the patient in terms of looking at always looking at the cardiopulmonary reserve of the patient look at the nutritional status of the patient look at the general state of the patient and if you if patient is resectable based on your staging 
and then you can go ahead and try and improve the operability of the patient. If they are malnourished, look at ways of improving their nutrition, look at ways of correcting all their cardiopulmonary uh, problems if correctable. And also, have a, the students need to have a, a good understanding of resectability based um, on our TNM staging that we've spoken about before. So they need to, to be able to classify their patients in which ones will be resected, will be offered what type of resections that they also if they need to understand. Dr. Mbata, thank you very much for coming in today. And I must say we're going to look forward to future podcasts for the, your gastroesophageal reflux disease and peptic ulcer disease. And maybe we'll get you to talk on functional disorders of the esophagus as well. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. 